Hello and welcome to No Man's Land. We are a podcast and publication about moderate politics, in particular about how we can have a discourse that avoids a culture war. Hence the name, about being between two warring trenches. The podcast is run by me, Steve O'Neill, and my collaborator Martin Rogers. We tend to be joined each week by a guest to talk us through a topic in depth, and you can find us on Medium or wherever you get your podcasts. We really hope you enjoy it. Oh, and please do follow us and leave a review. Hello, and welcome to No Man's Land podcast. As listeners will know, a central theme of this podcast has been working out how society can engage in politics without us falling out with each other. Polly McKenzie is CEO of the Demos Think Tank and has recently done some work on this and how we can make democracy work better. So we're delighted to have Polly join the podcast today. Polly, welcome. Hi, Steve. Uh, Thanks for having me. Uh, It's it's our pleasure. Perhaps you could um, briefly introduce yourself for for listeners. Sure. So I used to work with you, Steve, uh, at the Liberal Democrats. I I, I sometimes say that I I spent all of the years between spots and wrinkles working for Nick Clegg um, for my sins. So, you know, that that was kind of where I started in politics. Uh, I worked as Nick's affairs advisor in his leadership uh, campaign. I was a speechwriter and then I worked in government rather unexpectedly from 2010 to 2015. Since then, I went on, I helped to find to found the Women's Equality Party, a, a non-partisan political party, uh, if you believe that's a possible thing. Um, then I founded a, a mental health charity called the Money and Mental Health Policy Institute with the money-saving expert Martin Lewis. And for the last four years, I've been running Demos, which is, I would say this, wouldn't I, the best think tank, uh, the most fun, the most creative, uh, and crucially for me, uh, uh, a think tank that's always been nonpartisan, sometimes associated with the kind of the the Blairite left. But actually, if you look at the 30 years we've been around, we have published ideas from the left and the right and the conservative and the libertarian. and really, I think it, it are just a, a place for creative, imaginative thinking about the future that, that doesn't start with a set of ideological positions, but starts with the needs of the demos, the people uh, who I think government should be there to serve. That, well, that is perfect because that's very much our kind of theme of the podcast, particularly around bringing different sides together and and just for listeners that that might not know of course I worked at the Lib Dem headquarters between I think it was 2013 to 2015 so we were working together so I guess at the end of your period in government yeah you didn't uh you didn't abuse yourself with quite so many years of liberal democratic very sensible no I didn't um so we're going to get into in depth I hope to talk about this work you've done at Demos on making democracy work but while you're here, I think it'd be remiss of me not to get your kind of quick take on British politics. So, um, uh, you know, it's a difficult question to ask, answer quickly, but April 2022, what, what do you make of what's going on? I think at the core of my worry about this government is it's just a lack of seriousness, actually. Um, and, you know, I'm, I disagree with plenty of people in the government, plenty of people in the opposition, but it's not that that troubles me. It's the sense that we're not really trying to fix our problems. But most of the people who the Prime Minister has around him are people who are interested in politics. I quite like politics, you know, um, 
kind of geek who watches politics live and is interested in, I don't know, Twitter flame wars. But, you know, in the end, the politics is just the game that we play. It's the policy that makes the difference to people's lives. And after now 15 years of stagnant living standards um, with no plan in place to deal with our aging population or our wider demographic change, no plan in place to really transition the economy to net zero, uh, no plan to deal with the changing power dynamics in the world. What we've got is in the government, uh, people who like just winning arguments instead of getting things done. And I think that there's, there's the sense that it's all a Westminster bubble uh, sort of debate instead of the mechanisms of people's lives. And I, I just profoundly worry that we, we're not having serious conversations about where growth should come from. We're not having serious conversations about the trade-offs needed for net zero. And the opposition is um, more sensible than the previous leadership of the opposition. And that is welcome to be encouraged. Um, but, you know, it's tricky when you're in opposition because you come under a lot of pressure from think tanky people like me, I guess, to make up some policies. And that's not really how opposition works. But nevertheless, you do get the sense that, first of all, it's such a mountain to climb for the Labour Party to win in our kind of current political setup and the current balance of of our politics and our, our kind of electoral geography. But again, I get the sense that they're thinking about how to win and not thinking so much about what they might do if they actually did. Do you know what? Normally I would say that probably wouldn't kind of cut through to the media and the public, but I actually do get a sense of just like this government being a bit all over the place and that being the problem. So that, that's interesting. But it is, my, you know, I, I, let's take Channel 4 because that is a debate that is in the, in the public domain right now. And I, on balance, think that Channel 4 probably ought to stay in public ownership because I don't really see the point of privatising it. It's obviously not going to be able to go out there and compete with Netflix. It's a small bit player in one country, which actually produces kind of quite a lot of dross. They also produce some really fine programming in their public service kind of remit. But... It's fascinating to me to work the way that this government thinks that privatising Channel 4 achieves something. It doesn't achieve anything. It, it, it will make almost no difference if they then regulate to retain the public service broadcasting uh, remit that Channel 4 has, which they say that they will. So what's the point of it? when there are so many problems out there to address. And yet, of course, everybody is acting as if, uh, those who are opposed to it are acting as if um, it's impossible for a private sector organization to have any merit at all, that Channel 4 is somehow producing the greatest television of all time, which it's not. And again, nobody's really thinking about either the nature of the UK's cultural assets and how that uh, affects our soft global power. And nobody's thinking really about the future of the media industry or how the UK's creative industries develop over the next 10 or 20 years in that competitive landscape. Because instead what they're doing is 
fighting about the BBC because they don't like it and fighting about Channel 4 because they don't like it or because on the other side they do. And as a result, we are making absolutely no progress towards really reforming that one sector, the cultural industries, which have been core to Britain's kind of economic strength and soft power strength for so long. We're just caught up in a, a silly political spat about almost nothing at all. So that that is fascinating. But I think we're going to come back to it a bit, I hope at least, when we talk about the work going at Demos. But before we launch into that, um, I was interested to ask, so because we worked together, obviously, for part of the coalition government times, and it's been oof, about six and a half years, it's flown by since the 2015 general election. Um, how do you look back now on the coalition government and your time on it? And I'm particularly interested, given the topic today, whether there's anything you have changed your mind on between now and then. I change my mind all the time. Um, I like I like to think of it now as the scout mindset rather than just uh, being changeable. I don't know if you've read the book, The Scout Mindset, but it's a, a different way of framing that that old Keynes quote of, you know, the facts change, I change my mind. Um, I think there were lots of ways in which the coalition government was all right, actually, uh, and it was certainly better than those which followed it. But... Um, it's clear that our fiscal policy, particularly in the first couple of years when capital spending was cut so badly, was just misguided uh, and cost us a lot in terms of economic growth. Uh, I don't think, it's tricky because the Liberal Democrats exercised probably all the power that they had and made quite a difference to that government. Nevertheless, it was a government which was driven by conservatives who had many of them, some instincts around um, welfare policy or environmental policy that were very difficult to challenge or contest. And so lots of the mistakes that the coalition government made, we knew at the time were, were mistakes. You know, Liberal Democrats wanted to go further and faster on um, energy efficiency, for example, um, and tried to stop David Cameron from removing what he called the, the green crap from energy bills. Um, I think at the time I was probably more persuaded that providing strong and stable government at a time of national crisis was, um, was important. Um, and I, you know, I am proud that it, it lasted five years when everybody said that it wouldn't. On the other hand, you know, what would have happened if the Conservatives had gone into a minority government? Would things have, have evolved differently? very easy to get sort of sucked into a game where, where thinking about that allows you to believe we might not have got sucked into this sort of mortal death trap of, um, of Brexit and culture wars because perhaps, perhaps politics would have played out differently over the last uh, decade or so. But you never can know. Um, that's the problem with life. You only get really one turn at it. So for me, I guess the priority is not, not indulging in, in regret, but instead thinking about how you repair some of the harm that has been caused by essentially this dissent, first of the Conservative Party, then the Labour Party, though, you know, hopefully they're pulling themselves back into just populist, um, thoughtless uh, policymaking. Yeah, and it's, it, it is always impossible to look at the kind of, um, well, you use the word in one of your essays, counterfactuals, which obviously means what would yeah. happen if, um, obscure word. 
Um, and, and like, yeah, it, it isn't always impossible to know what would have happened. And I always think, is it, is it just quirk to history or is it just like there were big trend lines? So populism, for example, was it there was a big undercurrent somewhere and that was going to come out somehow? Some people argued it around Brexit, for example. Or, or not, and I, I don't know whether it's worth, whether it's that helpful to go into all that. The thing about the coalition that struck me, like looking back, um, I think I kind of agree with you, is that I, I guess austerity didn't age all that well. Well, it's interesting because you know austerity as a policy encompasses a lot more than what the coalition government did. And, you know, I've, I've mentioned capital spending cuts as, as being a particular mistake. But it's also worth bearing in mind that, that you know, that during that coalition period, we took this, um, this not that balanced, but slightly more balanced approach of, of 20% of the deficit reduction came from tax rises and 80% from spending cuts. Um, George Osborne then went in post-2015 to just ditching that 20%, didn't want to put taxes up anymore, uh, was interested in cutting various taxes and, and talking about that. And, you know, adding this, you know, an extra 12 billion of cuts into, into the welfare system. So austerity from 2015 onwards was really quite different from austerity between 2010 and 2015. That doesn't mean that I think that the government had the right fiscal approach. Uh, exactly right from 2010 to 2015, it didn't. But we must also remember that the Liberal Democrats, a small party, had... Did, did have a restraining impact on the Conservatives. And when they were obliterated by, by the Labour Party and the Conservative Party, both pursuing their interests of targeting the Liberal Democrats instead of each other, um, you know, that, that disappeared. And the post-2015 government was, frankly, much worse in terms of its, its fiscal policy, uh, in my view. And we, need, and we need to sort of bear that in mind when when we jump into this, like, oh, well, austerity, we should never have even done it. I think that is fair. And we actually spoke to Jonathan Portes, an economist who you may have come across on this podcast, and he did, and I asked him a similar question about looking back at austerity, and we were talking about the impact of Brexit and all kinds of things. But what he did say was that it was much more forgivable in his mind, and he, I think he's a centre-left-leaning economist, supporting that position in 2010 than it was in, say, I think we spoke to him in 2019. Um, yeah. So that kind of backs up what you're saying. Anyway, I think we could probably go all day on this kind of stuff. And it's really interesting to get your reflections. But let's talk about what you've been doing at Demos with Making Democracy Work. So perhaps you could just give us the overview of that, of that bit of work. And then we're going to come on to talk about some of the specifics. So, so I wrote this um, series of papers, basically, called, called Making Democracy Work, uh, which I published in the autumn, to really frame the work that Demos is trying to do. Because... I guess at the core of my concern is this sense that, um, so President Biden said on, this, on the 6th of January, uh, the anniversary of the, of the kind of capital riots, he said that Putin and President Xi had sort of said to him that they thought democracy was a weak system of government because it never did anything and it didn't have any courage to make difficult decisions. And, uh, and he wanted to prove that, that that wasn't true, that democracy is a strong system of government. The reality is I think it's in question because there are these enormous challenges that we face as a nation from how on earth do you regulate technology? How do you regulate uh, artificial intelligence? How do you deal with our aging population? How do you 
shift the economy from high carbon to low carbon industries? Um, how on earth do you fund the public services people want when they don't want to pay the taxes that would pay for them? There's so much complexity and, and Charles Clark called it the too difficult box. And it seems to me that the number of policy areas that are going into the too difficult box are just fundamentally unresolved whilst you know obesity goes up and uh, tax revenues collapse. It's just more and more and more. And, and it's because this we've got just a rubbish system of democracy, which has devolved into a set of political games instead of a serious conversation about how a country, a group of people in that country might collectively make decisions together. Um, and my view is that democracy is a, a more ethical, a more moral system of government than, you know, the authoritarian regimes that we see kind of competing with us, essentially, but that we can't just assume that it will prevail because of moral certitude. And actually, if we, if we continue to be incapable of making difficult decisions collectively, of making the trade-offs essential for living in a shared society, you know, then maybe President Xi and President Putin, God forbid, will be proved right. And that is, that's a disaster. Um, and I, you know, maybe that's just too alarmist, but for me, there is something existentially wrong with the way we choose to govern ourselves. And, and it has to change. We have to reform our democracy really at the most fundamental level, uh, put more power into the hands of citizens, uh, have much more participatory systems of government, but also of, of public service. I guess at the core of what I'm saying is that we have suggested to people that democracy is a sort of easy thing, that you put your, um, your X on your ballot paper uh, once every few years, and then you're kind of done. Somebody will make all of the decisions for you. The hard stuff will be taken out of your hands. You just pay your taxes and your public services will be delivered for you. And, and that's it. And I'm really persuaded by the arguments put forward by um, a range of people. John Alexander, for example, has just published a book called Citizens. I'm saying, actually, democracy requires quite a lot more of us. It requires us to be citizens. It requires us to engage in the complexity of public life. It requires us to be participants in public service delivery and in communities. And it requires us to be volunteers and debaters and champions and arguers and, and you cannot have democracy that is just for the people it has to be government by the people as well and that that's what we have have the, the, the core of where we've gone wrong because it's so much easier for a politician to make the sort of consumer style pledge of don't worry vote for me and I'll do all the hard work and the reality is they're not doing any of the hard work um, and we're in a mess because of it. One of the kind of key themes of this podcast has been uh, how we can do politics without falling out with those we disagree with. And that's why, particularly when I read one of the essays you mentioned, The Humble Policymaker, that, that stood out to me. So I wonder if we could drill into that one a bit. And so what prompted you to write that particular essay? So, you know, I've spent a lot of time with a lot of policymakers, both political and kind of civil service and then civil society. And the, the general way people conceive of their job, I think is problematic. 
and it has reward systems built around it, which is that it's your job to figure out the answer. And maybe you'll do that by being very clever with spreadsheets, or maybe you'll just come up with a brilliant new idea or a brilliant way of framing a regulation, or maybe you'll do a randomized controlled trial to work out precisely what works to get the outcome that you want. And, and then when you've decided what the best thing is for people, you will just um, impose it on them. Maybe it's through legislation or just a, a change in the service. And the problem with this is, um, well, the reward system around this is it makes you feel clever, right? Is that I'm clever than everybody else. I've figured out the answer. Boom, problem solved. There will be no more drug addiction or a childhood obesity fixed. Um, and there's two problems with this. The first one is that actually so much of policy exists in systems whereby everything is interconnected and you end up with so many complicated interactions that you know your one simple policy just doesn't really work the other you know kind of which goes to the sort of core of my point about democracy is that it places a huge burden on the legitimacy of you the decision maker too much of a burden in my view so the story that I tell to bring this to life is of a, a skiing holiday I had with my husband uh, before we had children um, at uh, the Borovets Skiing Resort in Bulgaria, which I'm afraid I cannot recommend. We went to the worst hotel of all time and it was full board. So we had dinner there only the first night. Then we learned better. My husband went up to get me a pudding and he brought back a mouldy orange. And I, I obviously, despite the fact that I had all this contextual information around me, which was that this is the worst hotel in the history of time. And the fact that this is the love of my life who has brought me this moldy orange with the promise that this is the best thing available. I did not, I could not believe him and I had to go up and choose for myself. Uh, as it turns out, he was right. It was pretty much the best thing. Um, and that's the thing is if you are in policymaking and you are designing things for people in a closed box, whatever you come out with, you then have to just tell people it's the best that you've got because you know I did a cost-benefit analysis or look there's a randomized control trial and people actually want to be involved in making decisions for themselves I think it changes the legitimacy of them we saw this so much with Brexit if I think about the place where I grew up in in rural Wales where billions has been invested in uh, infrastructure because of EU funds and you talk to the farmers and what do they say you didn't ask us what we wanted and that's the problem, is if you are designing in a closed system the best thing, because there's a, there's a counterfactual, you know that it's better if you spend the money this way, or, oh, it's much better actually for the country if we spend money in London, because the total return on investment will be £17 billion, and that will lead to a rising GDP, which means that you folks in Burnley are going to get more money than if we didn't spend this money in London. You're asking a lot of people. The reality is if you involve people in the decision-making process, and to do that, I think you have to devolve power very, very substantially, they feel differently about the decisions in which they've been involved. And if you look at the big changes that we need in our society, including you know, breaking down this kind of professional and citizen gap in our public services or getting people to change their behavior around their carbon emissions, 
you you can't just tell people what to do because it doesn't work. You actually have to involve in the decision making um, and not just hand out moldy oranges and assume that they'll be grateful because they somehow know that it really was the best thing on offer. I really like your story about the, the moldy orange that made me smile. Um, so it sounds like a large part of what you're saying is that buy-in really matters, not just being right. Um, and maybe we'll draw a thread through the conversation with that. But I want to ask you about two things. In this essay, you talk about being a partisan and being a technocrat. So can we talk about what's wrong with being a partisan first? So what, what is wrong with being just being a partisan? Well, yeah, I mean, the moldy orange thing is about being a technocrat, really. It's feeling that, you know, you, you somehow can choose the right thing on behalf of people and expect them to be grateful. What's wrong with it being a partisan is that it, it clouds your judgment. You know, it's, it, it's a lot like being a, a football supporter, which is fine. I'm not against people supporting football teams. But, you know, if you support Everton, you have all sorts of deep feelings about Liverpool that... Liverpool Football Club, I mean, that are not, of course, really grounded in reality. They're grounded in a rivalry. And the meaning that that brings to your life, the sense of insider group solidarity with your team and, um, and the joy that it can bring to people's lives. And that's totally fine when it comes to football, assuming you don't start beating people up. But when you bring that to decision making about public life, I think it can be incredibly harmful. Um, and I I'm always astonished by how often I will hear, you know, very senior, seemingly very clever people in public life who are politically aligned will dismiss ideas that are totally sensible just because they come from, from the opposition. And that's completely stupid. So I'm sure you've read the political brain, sort of the, the book that looked at this in, in detail. And, and it gives the example of a bunch of people who hated Bill Clinton, an old book. They really hated Bill Clinton. But they were, they were sort of um, put in a room and talked through a bunch of policy positions. And they said, oh, yeah, I like that policy position and that one and that one. They liked all of them. And then it was revealed that, in fact, they were Bill Clinton policy positions. And, and what's truly extraordinary about the kind of the focus group anecdote is that they managed to post hoc rationalize their way back into being opposed to them. They, they talked themselves around um, and they didn't kind of see the, the, the ridiculousness of that. They didn't have that, that gotcha moment of going, oh, now I feel stupid, maybe Bill Clinton's not that bad. Absolutely not, they doubled down and the book also chronicles, you know, you put partisans into MRI scanners and you can see that the parts of their brain that light up when they're asked about their opponents or their side are the emotional parts of the brain, not the rational parts of the brain. And that is what being partisan, being politically affiliated does to you. Um, and it means that you are, I think, very often blinded to um, the good ideas and the differential experience that people on the other side of the argument have. Now, there are good politicians who are capable of, of looking beyond that, but I think there's very few activists who are. And of course, increasingly because of internal party democracy, it's the activists who control the parties. And they are the people who are the most tribal, the most affiliated, the most entrenched, 
um, and the least invested actually in the collective needs of the population. So I think that most people probably would agree with what you said there, other than maybe the the small set of the people who actually have power in our political system. (laughs) Well, yeah, yeah, maybe. And and obviously those people exercise influence on MPs who, from my experience, often are much more sensible than um, people would assume them to be or or less um, uh, narrow minded than you assume some would assume them to be. I think the technocrat things a bit more tricky. So can we get on to that? So I've often, I often, I'm down the pub with civil servants, let's, let's say civil servants for sake of argument, and they will give the kind of slightly cliched views that if only we could just convince the minister of this technically right answer, we've done all the thinking, but the minister has to pander to politics, um, but we can make the, the world better with our with our technically correct answers. What, what's wrong with that? So let's think about the welfare system, right? The welfare system is essentially people with less need putting money into a system and people with more need getting money out of a system, right? Um, And there are an infinite number of ways that you can design a welfare system. But for me, at the core of it is legitimacy because you have to um, have the buy-in of those people who are paying for it. Now, you know, some people would, disagree with me on that and say, how dare I um, think that rich people should be uh, the holders of all of the power and that poor people should have to go cap in hand and beg for funds. I, I have some sympathy for that. But in the end, you know, in a democracy, if you believe in a democracy, you actually believe in everybody, including rich people, having power in the system. And, and so you have to, if you want to have a sustainable welfare system, have a general sense that the people who are paying for it think that it's fair or they won't pay for it. And I think what we had in the run up to 2010 was a sort of a collapse in the public legitimacy of our welfare system, which made it far too easy for those with an ideological bent to to then sort of dismantle it. You also need legitimacy on the behalf of claimants because there are far, far too many people who feel like benefits are not for them or that they shouldn't be entitled or, and, and therefore don't get the money um, that they need and deserve. And if you want an act of solidarity, which is what a welfare system is, both between individuals at any one time and also between individuals and their future or past selves, you have to think about legitimacy as being not some separate, oh, yeah, look, we could have a perfect system if it wasn't for politics, actually as core to a successful system. Um, it, it is a, 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 an actual um, a, a design feature that matters. And the reality is, in my view, that you're going to have a much better welfare system in terms of long-term sustainability if part of its legitimacy comes from public involvement in its design, uh, which is why participative processes of democracy are so interesting, because it feels more like it belongs to us. You can get that magic that we have with the NHS for reasons that, you know, slightly defy logic, but it feels like it belongs to us. And that makes it more successful. I think that climate change policy is another one of these things whereby actually, do you know what? There's loads of different ways to cut carbon emissions. And there's a lot of uncertainty out there about precisely which is the most 
cost effective way over the long term to you know is it, it you know in terms of from our food system is it cultivated meat is it changes in land use is it this fertilizer is it that change in sheep policy you know it's complicated and and essentially what we need is to cut our carbon emissions by a, a particular number of tons and in the end you can take the technocratic view that what that the way to choose it is to get some clever people to work out the absolute most efficient way or you can involve the public and the great thing about involving the public is that having been involved they will feel differently about the decisions and that therefore it might actually be more successful because public willingness to change is absolutely core to delivering um, those carbon reductions. It, it, it's just a different way of conceptualizing legitimacy. It's not that you design the perfect policy and then you have to go out and get legitimacy. It's that you can create legitimacy by co-design. And it's my strong view, especially in the realm of public service design, that you actually get better policy uh, if you involve people with lived experience, with um, uh, you know, the understanding of the complexity of their lives and their communities. You know, I think about the Green Deal, uh, an attempt by the coalition government to get people to you know, do energy efficiency. And it was rubbish. It was rubbish designed by technocrats who had absolutely no engagement with citizens about the realities of their lofts and their walls and their design aesthetics and the practicalities of who you might and might not trust to get through your door. Um, so I think you get better policy if you involve people. But I, I don't think we have to prove that because I want to make a different case. My case is that legitimacy is at the core of policy success and you can get it through participative policy design, which is essentially what we then do at Demos, just to tie it back to you know, why these pamphlets are published at Demos, is we involve the public in what all of the work that we do to try and choose policy choices is it's not just me and a bunch of people with Oxbridge degrees going, I know what's best to people because I'm really clever. It's actually about going with the grain of public values and public opinion because you will have more success more quickly that way. I, just to drill in, I think I've understood what you're saying because the, it's, you're not saying that, because um, the comeback will be, but what if we have even better technocrats with better AI and spreadsheets? But actually, I think what you're saying is actually there is no right answer that's not connected to that legitimacy. That's partly what makes it the right answer. Is, is that right? That is that is precisely what I'm saying. I'm saying and you've said it better than me. So uh, another example that I give right is a park. So let's imagine you're trying to redesign a park for the needs of the local community. Um, there's two ways you can go about, it. I mean, there's lots of ways, but right, like, I, I caricature of two ways. One is you collect lots of data from the public through lots of surveys um, about how they might use the park. And you get a clever person to, who knows lots about park design and ecosystems and habitats and, I don't know, play equipment to um, design the best thing to create maximum utility for the needs of that population. The alternative is that you can get the people who are gonna use that park together to design it. And they need to 
they need to then be provided with some of that information about, about what might grow or whatever what foundations one needs for particular kinds of play equipment. So you, you put the expert in a servant role to the community and you get them to design what happens in that space. And I think it, most people would accept that when you're talking about something like that, there's, there isn't you know, a perfect right park because what you're really doing is you know, you're trying to maximize utility and it's complicated and you know an azalea bush here or there isn't going to sort of fundamentally make a difference but if people have been involved two things will happen lots of relationships will have been established between those people through the process of being involved um and in the final paper in my series which is called the gravitational state i, I suggest that actually government ought to take a sort of de-atomizing role of really trying to encourage and enable peer-to-peer -peer citizen relationships in a way that it perhaps didn't need to do before we all, you know, got on the internet all of our lives. Um, and, and that's a really positive side effect of participative policymaking, um, exposure to different kinds of people, engagement. But I think that people also then feel quite differently about the park because it they will feel connected to it in a way that they wouldn't if they had filled out a survey and been presented with the answer. And I can't prove it, but my instinct is that therefore people's behaviour in that park is going to be a bit different because it will feel more like it belongs to them. And when you're thinking about the commons, which it, you know, so much of our life is in fact lived in the commons, the, the public commons of of spaces on the internet, the public commons of uh, our shared public services, our shared welfare systems, our roads, you know, people's behavior to one another is at the core of what makes a good society. And, and I think that you can really reshape how people feel about that commons by putting them in much more of a decision-making uh, role. And maybe the park wouldn't actually be as good uh, if it was reviewed by uh, an expert design committee. But if it feels like it belongs to the community, then you've got an outcome that I believe matters much more. So what does being a humble policymaker, as the essay is entitled, what does that involve? I'm thinking with Brexit and COVID, we had quite a lot of people being both technocratic and partisan. Um, it, it, just to finish off, could you give us a feeling for what, what, what it looked like to have a better system? Um, in the essay, I, I, I talk about different categories of, of decisions, right? So... If I ask you how far it is from your office to my office, right, there's just an answer. Uh, and, and there's probably a debate we could have about the best way to walk it, but nevertheless, there is a fixed distance that is a real fact. Um, but when it comes to the best way to walk it, we're gonna want to have a discussion because what do you want to go past? Are you prioritizing the speed? Are you prioritizing the, um, whether you can make a detour to a cafe on the way? And actually what matters then is what we can agree on. And I think at the core of our kind of public policy mistake is assuming that too many things, too many policy design questions are fixed answer ones, that there really is a, a best answer and the job is to figure it out. Instead of recognizing that actually often what you're looking for is what we can agree on. And that's not giving up, that's not focus group politics, that's about public consensus to achieve public policy results. 
And so I think a, a, a humble policymaker who's trying to think about uh, childhood obesity, for example, something which we have been trying and failing to address for generations. I, I think they would start by engaging and talking to the public, talking to parents, talking to children, and then also talking to people who manage to, you know, bring up their children without um, uh, poor health choices, who are managing to exercise more, and actually trying to then build public consent for a package of choices that would actually make the difference. Because again, if you're talking about intimate decisions made, you know, like three times a day in a home, is actually if the parents aren't involved in what is gonna help them to change their lives and the lives of their children, it's, it's just never gonna work. So in a sense, I would, I would train policymakers to be conveners and consensus builders, not experts. Experts should be in the service of um, public participative decision-making, not the arbiters. Polly, it's been absolutely brilliant having you on the podcast. I know you need to get away now, but I just want to say thank you. And um, to listeners, thank you for listening. Uh, with the No Man's Land podcast, please do share, retweet, etc. Uh, and goodbye.